Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. Thank you for being here with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. I guess it's the fifth Sunday of the month of July, last Sunday of this month. And wow, where, where has summer gone? It really has gone by quickly, has it not? But it, uh, it is good to be here and be here with you guys. I want to thank uh, Pastor Dave for filling in for me last week while my family and I were able to get away for a few days. And I want to thank you, my church family, for offering me that opportunity. I certainly appreciate that. My family and I certainly appreciated getting an opportunity to get away. A change of scenery is nice, and a, and a change of a venue is nice once in a while to kind of rejuvenate and get a, little, get a little air back in your sails. And so it was an exciting time for us, and we're glad, though, to be back here among God's people, among our church family this morning, and be able to worship with you, to be able to sing songs of praise to our, our Heavenly Father and, and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and it's, been, it's been, already been a wonderful time to be back with you this morning. And so uh, we're going to continue to, to worship the Lord together today by, by looking into His Word. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the book of 1 John. 1 John, we are going to be back in chapter 4 this week, and we're going to look beginning in verse 12 down through the end of the chapter. Quite a lengthy section today, but uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to cover all of it. I don't, I don't know if you like puzzles or not. I'm not a big fan of puzzles. Uh, especially those puzzles that get up into the multiple hundreds and even in the thousands. I just don't have the patience to sit there for that length of time and look for pieces and kind of figure out how they go together. But, but whenever I do put together a puzzle, I kind of have a, a certain way that I go about it. It was the way that I was taught, I guess. I learned it somewhere growing up. And when you have a big puzzle, what you do is you dump it all out, right? And you turn all the pieces up where you can see them. And then the way that I was taught how you put together puzzles, you start looking for patterns, you start looking for colors that, that match, and you sort of group all of them into little, into little piles, and you look for things that look the same, and you sort of pile them together. And then once you've got your individual piles laid out, then you start looking for the straight edges. And when you find the straight edges, that's what's going to help you be able to frame in the puzzle so that you know where it all goes. Now, that's kind of the direction that I, I, I try to go about doing that. Now, here's what you know. When you get all those individual piles out there, when you put that together, that's not the whole puzzle. That, that's only a section of it, right? That's only a part of it. The, the whole puzzle comes together when all the different sections, when you get those connecting pieces that bring it together so that you can, all comes into view and you can see what it is that the picture is of. Now, you need to know that's how I put together my puzzles. You may be listening to how I put together my puzzles and think there's no way I'd ever sit down and put together a puzzle with that guy like that. I mean, that's just too structured. For some of you, you might just enjoy jumping the puzzles out, the pieces out on the, play, on, on the table, and then just looking for things that fit. It's not up, you're not all that interested in separating them out into piles and doing that, and that's okay. What I want you to know, I don't think there's any rule or right way or wrong way to put together a puzzle. I would also say the same thing about the writers of the New Testament, and really the writers of the Bible in general. You see, in fact, I would characterize a lot of what we've been studying in the Gospel of John to being John. John just sort of likes to take the puzzles as they just come on the table and sort of they, they come together and there's two or three different piles that he's working out of at the same time. Whereas I would also say that the Apostle Paul was more like the way that I kind of like thinking, putting it... He, he, he puts things into categories and he makes statements and then he, he bolsters those statements with, with his, the undergirding comments that go with it. And so he, he puts together more of a structure that you work from, from beginning to end. That's kind of the way the Apostle Paul's mind works. John's mind works a little differently from that. He, 
He sort of has two or three puzzle pieces and piles that he's working off of at the same time. And I don't know if you've been able to pick up on that, if that makes sense. But as we've worked our way through this epistle of John, that to me is what a recurring theme that I continue to go up. Because John is one that he's, he's thinking along two or three lanes at the same time, all the way through. And I want you to know neither way of writing is right or wrong. As a matter of fact, I would say both of them are right. Because both of them communicate God's inerrant truth to us. Both of those right ways of writing were used by the Holy Spirit to, to communicate the gospel of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the implications of that gospel for our lives. And so when we come to that, what we're looking at this morning, I want you to kind of see how John's sort of thinking, if I can present it that way. This section that we're going to look at this morning really is a continuation of what John has been focused on now for a while. Though he's interrupted his own thought process a couple of occasions, John has been interested in communicating to his readers the absolute necessity of loving one another. Now this focus really started back in earnest back in chapter 3. He talked about it a little bit in chapter 2, but it started in earnest in chapter 3 when he, when he held the issue of love up as the means by which we could see whether or not we're children of, of God or children of Satan. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he said this, In this the children of God... And the children of devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, when John says that there, he is starting a process of beginning to discuss loving one another. And that's where we've been. We've been hearing that again and again and again throughout this epistle. Matter of fact, down in verse 23 of chapter 3, he says this, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then in verse 11... Of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, as his repetition makes clear, love is a major theme that weaves its way throughout John's epistle. But we must also remember that there are other things that continue to show up throughout his epistle as well. For example, we frequently noted John's desire to want to talk to us about uh, uh, providing us with assurance of our salvation, with, with showing us and instilling with us a, a confidence that we can know that we are truly saved. We've gone to this verse a number of times, but John states one of the reasons for writing his gospel in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants his readers to know some things of certainty. He didn't want his readers to be awash in, in doubt and disbelief. He, he wanted them to be assured of their relationship with God and, and that they had been born of God and that they would continue to abide in God and he in them. In, in chapter 2, verse 28, he says this. He says, and now little children, abide in him. That when he appears, what? We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So John is concerned about love. He is concerned about assurance of salvation. He's concerned about confidence before God. And he is also concerned about us expressing a right belief in Jesus Christ. 
just as I said earlier in, in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And this belief that John talks about comes as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in our life who brings us to an understanding whose confession is this, according to chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, what should be evident to us is that in all of these different things that are running through John's head all at one time, they all intermingle together into one and, and, and kind of connect to one another and ultimately produce this beautiful picture that sort of comes into form in what John has written for us. And so that is what our text is going to show us this morning. All of these things are going to show up in our text this morning. So with that as an introduction and hopefully giving you a little insight as to the structure of this text, which quite frankly is a little hard to pin down. Nevertheless, let's hear the Word of God today beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4, where John writes these words under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it tells us and teaches us. Thank you for how it draws us into a deeper introspection of our own lives. And that, Father, that that is also an invitation to a deeper relationship with you. I pray that today your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts through your word and that that would be produced as we study this book that you have given to us by your grace and mercy, that we might apply it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I began talking to you about puzzles this morning and, and really straight out of the gate in verse 12, I don't know if that hit you, there's a, there's a puzzle that's there right there in, in verse 12. It's one of those intriguing puzzling verses, quite frankly, uh, straight out of the gate, we see, because what, what John says at the beginning of verse 12, quite frankly, just doesn't seem to fit the context of everything else he's been talking about. If I can just sort of bring you up to speed, everything else he talked about in the previous section where we were two weeks ago, John told us that, that God's love was manifested toward us in this way, that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 
And, and, and God did, did, did not do that because we loved him first, but because he first loved us. And then he sent Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And therefore, what John tells us, and he ends up there in verse 11 telling us, is that because we have been loved in such a way as that, we then also ought to go and love other people. That's kind of how the previous paragraph set up and what he says. But then sort of out of nowhere, John says this, no one has seen God at any time. Well, thanks, John. Exactly what does that mean? Where did that come from? What, what's, where did that statement kind of come from out of that, that context? What does that have to do with what you've just told us? Well, really we should begin our investigation by realizing this is not the first time John has said this. As a matter of fact, if we went back to the Gospel of John, we would find that he said this exact same thing in the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, it came in the opening prologue, in the opening verses of John's Gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 18. And what he said to us there was this, no one has seen God at any time. But then he amplifies it or, or brings it out and says this, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. In other words, what John tells us is that God's Son, whom He sent to atone for our sins, Jesus Christ, He has made God known to us. Jesus is the one who has come to reveal the Father. Remember that Jesus once told Philip, he, he asked Philip, he says, if you have seen, he told Philip, he says, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You, you want to know what the Father looks like? If I've been with you so long, you don't know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus also made this statement one time in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. He says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So what we learn is, is that though no one has ever seen the Father, Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. But the issue for the believers that John wrote to, and really the, the issue for us this morning is this. Jesus has now gone back to be with the Father. He now sits at the Father's right hand. Therefore, if Jesus is gone, and if He is no longer here bodily on this earth, then how will God ever be introduced to the world? How will, how will God ever be known in the world? And it's that question, really, that I believe opens up the reasoning for why John states what he states there, beginning in verse 12. Because you see, although God is unseen, He has never been seen by anyone, He has assured us that He is not to remain unknown. Though He is unseen, He is not unknown. So the question is, how does He continue to reveal Himself to a darkened world? Well, notice the last half of verse 12. Because in the last half of verse 12, He says, If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. In other words, as Karen Jobes has written, it is the Christian's love for one another derived from God's love for us that is revelatory. You see, when you and I love one another in the way that the Bible says that we as believers should, then we reveal God's love to an onlooking world. We've reminded ourselves of this verse numerous times throughout this study. 
Something that Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was crucified in the upper room. He said this in John 13, verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, I read an anecdotal story about a bunch of preachers who got together and they were all kind of talking about different things and they were all discussing about which version of the Bible they liked the best. One of them said, I like the King James Version. Another one says, I like the New King James. Another one said, the NIV. Another one said, the ESV. And they were all bantering back and forth as to the merits of why one was better than the other. And finally, one, one preacher spoke up and he says, I like my mother's translation the best. He said, she translated the Bible into life and it was the most convincing translation I have ever seen. That's essentially what John is saying here. Though God is invisible... He is revealed through our lives and through our love for one another. Paul said something similar to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 and following, he says to them, You are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And he says, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. There's an old saying that, quite frankly, if I'm just being transparent with you, I don't really like it, but I do like it to some degree. There's an old saying that goes this way, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, the reason I don't like that is because the clear proclamation of the gospel requires words. It is necessary that we talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is necessary that we talk about the virgin birth. It is necessary that we talk about a literal bodily resurrection. It is necessary that we say that Jesus Christ died in your place. People can see our lives, but unless they hear those words, they will never truly understand the gospel. So that's the one reason I don't like it. On the other hand, the reason I do like that phrase is this, is because you and I, every day, as we live our lives in front of people, we are giving testimony as to whether or not the truth of that gospel has truly impacted our lives and changed us from the inside out. And unless our lives reflect the truth of that word, that true gospel, then all the words that we say will fall on deaf ears. Our lives have to be accompanied with the true impact of what that gospel has done for us. That's, that's what John is saying. They go together. Faith without works is dead. They must go together. Paul says it is through the foolishness of preaching that God brings about salvation. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, we must remember that wherever we go and whatever we do, we are living letters known and read by our family and our friends and our neighbors. Our lives reveal what we truly believe about God. And notice that John reveals something extraordinary in this verse. He says that when we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. Now, does that mean that God's love was somehow imperfect before? Does that mean in some way that it, it lacked something? Absolutely not. God's love for us is complete in Christ. He could... He could never love us more than he loves us right now. Nevertheless, as John has been saying to us again and again throughout this epistle, 
God's love in us comes to something that is brought to a completion. It is brought to its finished state when we love one another as Christ loved us. So with that as an understanding this morning, it brings me to the first point on your outline that I want you to see, and it's this. The unseen God who abides in us reveals himself and makes his perfected love known to the world through our love for one another. The unseen God who abides in us reveals himself and makes himself makes his perfect love known to the world through our love for one another. I like what Greg Allen has written. He says, the world does not see God. It cannot see God. The people of the world do not want to see God. But it cannot escape the evidence of his love when it is present in us and perfected through us. So here's the question that we must ask ourselves in light of that verse. Are we faithful translations? Are we loving one another as the Savior has loved us and has, as God has given us commandment? Now, as I said, John is no doubt concerned about love, our love for one another, but he's not lost sight of the other issues that continue to go through his mind and continue to ruminate in his thoughts. Notice that John starts pulling pieces from other piles, as it were, as he begins to assemble this picture. In verse 13, he, he repeats his emphasis on knowledge. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. In other words, here he is going to give us the means by which we can be assured of our relationship with God through Christ. He, he's going to reveal a way by which we can know that we have eternal life that we have been born of God, that we truly belong to Him and that we abide in Him and He in us. How can we do that? Well, how can we know? It's because he says this, because God has given us of His Spirit. Remember that we looked at this a couple of weeks ago? Jesus had promised in John 14, verse 16 and 17, He says, and I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because... It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Why? For he dwells with you and will be in you. This is what the, the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, where he said the Holy Spirit is the seal of the promise of our redemption. And as we saw a few weeks back, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. It is the divine proof given to those who truly belong to the community of faith that we abide in God and He in us. And that mutual abiding, along with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is what John's focus remains on here. In verses 14 and 15, he says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son, of, the Son as Savior of the world, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and he and God. Back in, back in 1 John 4, verse 2, John wrote, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And what that tells us is, is that it is only by the indwelling testimony of the Spirit of God that we come to confess, that we come to agree with the testimony concerning the deity of Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one speaking 
by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And conversely, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But it is not only our confession of the deity of Christ that the Spirit enables us to believe, it's also by that same Spirit that we're enabled to love as God commands us to love. Do you realize that the entire power that you have within you to believe what the Bible says about Jesus, to believe that and to live that out in your daily life comes by the power of the Holy Spirit of God working in you. It is only by the Spirit of God, by the gift of God's Spirit. And John tells us that God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. John, John Stott offers this helpful commentary. He says, the natural man can neither believe nor love. In his fallen and unredeemed state, he is both blind and selfish. It is only by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and who is of the Spirit of truth, and who is, whose first fruit is love, that man ever comes to believe in Christ and to love others. Therefore, the necessary corollary to that understanding is that when true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ is accompanied by true and genuine love for one another, it is then that we give testimony to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which assures us that we actually do abide in God and that He abides in us. I like how I. Howard Marshall has put it. He says that three characteristics of the Christian emerge in this passage. Possession of the Spirit, confession of Jesus as the Son of God, and then living in the love of God. And on, the basis, on that basis, there can be erected a firm foundation for Christian hope. Therefore, notice the next point on your outline that I have for you this morning. The second point on your outline this morning is this. Our assurance that we abide in God and He in us is evidenced by the Holy Spirit whose indwelling makes possible our belief in Jesus Christ and our love for one another. So back in verse 12, we noted that the unseen God who abides in us reveals Himself and makes His perfected love known to the world through our love for one another. Then, in this last section from verses 13 through 16, John has expanded and he's fleshed out the discussion of what it means for God to abide in us. And he discusses the divine indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in doing so, he meshes together the themes of assurance and faith and love. And then beginning in verse 17 and following, he goes back and he takes up that whole issue of perfected love once more. In verse 17, John says, love has been perfected among us in this, and he goes on to talk about our confidence in God. Now, love being perfected, this is not the first time that John's talked about this. He's talked about love being perfected in us when we obey God's word. He talked about that earlier, back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 6. He says, The truth is not, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Listen, when he talks about being perfected there, he's not saying that God's love is lacking. It's not as if he's got a pitcher there and the water's almost to the top and he's saying with just a little more, we can perfect God's love. That's not the image that, that, that John is talking about. What he's saying is, is that it comes to its fruition. It comes to its completed purpose. It makes the full circle that's designed for it to be made when we obey and do what he tells us to do. That's what he told us back in chapter 2. But then he also tells us back in verse 12, as we've already seen, that when we love one another, then we are perfecting it. We're, we're, we're making the full circle. In, in, I, I, I flunked out of electrician school in, in the Navy, so 
you can't believe anything. You electricians can, can get me later. But one of the things that you do is, is, is you, you, you break the cycle of the current. When the current's running, you need to have it com- making a complete circuit. When you break that, it doesn't make the circuit any longer. What John is saying is, is when we love one another, we, we complete the circuit that God had designed for it to do in our lives. That's when His love is flowing into us. It's to be flowing back out. We're not to be cul-de-sacs, brothers and sisters. We're to be multi-lane highways that when God's love flows in us, it flows right back out to our brothers and sisters. That's what he's told us in verse 12. That's when love is perfected and come to its completion. But then in verse 17, he discusses the perfection of God's love and how it affects our inner selves. John has been telling us all along in this passage, he's been pulling all these different pieces of the puzzle together, and this time he tells us that love is perfected in us when we have boldness before God, when we have confidence before Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at His coming, as he said earlier. In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Later in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. And here in verse 17, he says, We have boldness in the day of judgment. That word boldness is the same word translated confidence in those other verses. And so he keeps coming back to this issue. And what John says is that God's love reaches its intended purpose in our lives. It is perfected in us when we experience confidence before Him and we're no longer fearful of the day of judgment. We no longer shrink back from seeing Him face to face. When we can live with nothing to hide and nothing to fear. In fact, John says that if you are fearful and standing before God in the day of judgment, then you do not really understand God's perfected love. Why? Well, because perfected love drives out fear. There's no place for fear and God's perfect love together. In other words, you cannot run to God and desire to be in His presence and at the same time run from Him in fear, in fear of punishment. Such things are incongruous with one another. They don't mix. And when we realize, as John says in verse 17, that we are as He is in this world, In other words, that we are as Christ is. Then we realize that we are God's beloved children. That we stand before God robed in Christ's righteousness. And because that is the case, we we have no reason to fear God. We have no reason to, to run from His presence. Rather, as He tells us in verse 19, we will love Him. As John makes clear, and as he did here back and also back in verse 10 of this same chapter, The love that we experience is a love that God demonstrates to us first. Our love for Him is a response to His love for us. God loved us first when we were unlovable, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and without hope in this world. Now in the oldest manuscripts, this verse simply reads, we love because He first loved us. The New King James I read for you earlier in verse 15 says we love Him. But that probably was an addition at a later time. But either, either way, it's, it's absolutely right. We do love Him because He first loved us. But we love in general. We love one another because He first loved us. And that carries into the last two verses of this chapter, which says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from Him. That he who loves God must love his brother also. 
What we can deduce from what John says here is that when God's love is perfected in us, we will do as God commands us. We will identify ourselves as belonging to him and we will love one another as he has loved us. Therefore, note, note the final point on your outline this morning. The third and final point on your outline this morning is this. Our confidence that we will stand without fear before God in the day of judgment is that he has loved us first, thereby compelling our love for one another. You know, we've seen it again and again in John's epistle that, that he paints things only in black and white. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he, he said that one who claims to walk with God but then walks in the darkness, that person's a liar. He doesn't give any option for a third, a third option there. In chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he said that to claim to possess the Father while denying the deity of the Son is to lie. He didn't give a third option there either. It's either, either you believe that Jesus is the Christ or you don't. And then here in our passage this morning, he says to claim to love God while hating your brother or sister is also to lie. You see, as, as John Stott has summarized, however loudly we affirm ourselves to be Christian, our habitual sin, our denial of Christ, and our selfish hatred expose us as the liars that we are. Only holiness, faith, and love can prove the truth of our claim to know, possess, and love God. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture that John paints for us. He brings all of these different pieces together, weaves them together, intermingles them together so that we see this picture that he desires. And what he wants us to understand is what I would like to say to you in my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. When we love one another as God commands, we reveal His self-initiating, perfected love to the world, which proves that we abide in Him and He in us and gives us confidence before Him. So as we look at this picture that John paints, I think it requires us to ask ourselves a few questions. The question we should think about is this, how well am I showing others the love that God has shown me? How well does my life reveal God's love to others? Am I really abiding in Him and He in me? Is my relationship with God such that I'm not running from Him in fear, but rather that I can come before Him with boldness and confidence? When others see me, do they see the effect of God's saving work on display in my life through my love for one another? Brothers and sisters, all of these are questions that this text requires us to ask of ourselves. It points us to our love for one another to our continual abiding in Him and He in us, and to the assurance and the confidence that we have in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.